Hello and welcome to the O&M Stockroom. We are your hosts, Brian McGarry and Ken O'Malley. Tonight is episode 14 of Complimentary Cinema. If you're new to the channel, Complimentary Cinema is a program where we review and discuss films that you can watch for free that are available on uh, YouTube or elsewhere. Uh, Be warned, we discuss films in detail, so consider this a full spoiler alerts. So uh, tonight, what is our what's our film, Ken? So we watched the 2016 film American Pastoral, which is a drama. I would say. You mean it's not a heartwarming tale of uh, suburban American bliss in the mid-century? It certainly starts out that way. It certainly starts out well, that way. Kind of, but um, yeah, it is the story about how. Um, it's the story of what you just described and how it could go terribly, terribly wrong. So uh, you, you picked this film. It was your turn to pick this week. And uh, I think your main criteria was that you glanced at the screen and you saw that it was Ewan McGregor and Jennifer Connelly. Right. And I, I thought to myself, that's, first of all, a, a good match. And second of all, people I really like. And um, I mean, I didn't know anything what to expect from the movie. Other than I'd never heard of it, and they were in it. Yeah, I love Ewan McGregor. Um, you know, Obi-Wan in the Star Wars films. He was in Train Spotting, another classic. Uh, just all around, you know, done a lot of good work. A lot of good performances there. And uh, Jennifer Connelly, The Rocketeer, Labyrinth, um, Dark City. You know, uh, it's been a while since I see uh, A Beautiful Mind, that's another one. I haven't seen her in anything in the last 10 years, though, really. I don't watch a whole lot of newer films. But, uh, yeah, I was I was uh, definitely looking forward to this one. And, and I, then I, you pointed out Dakota Fanning was also um, in the cast. And Dakota Fanning, who I haven't seen her in very much. Um, I definitely know her more by reputation and name than actually having seen her work. Um, I definitely saw her in War of the Worlds when she was a little kid. And I saw a couple of those era movies of Dakota Fanning. I don't think I'd seen anything where she's actually an adult. Right. At least not that I can recall off the top of my head. Yeah, I've seen a few, but I, I I couldn't tell you what they were. So, you know, I was definitely, uh, you know, thinking this might be a, a fun, interesting movie to watch. And it's definitely interesting. I would not call this a fun movie. No. This was uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely heart-wrenching. As fun as it is ever to watch anyone's life just devolve into, you know, complete crap. This would be the film. So, uh, so yeah. So, as you said, it came out in 2016. It's uh, based on a book by uh, Philip Roth, which came out back in the 90s. And apparently, uh, the book has a much better reputation than this film, which was uh, also Ewan McGregor's uh, directing debut. Personally, I thought he did a good job with the uh, directing. I thought it was a pretty good film. I think he did a very good job of balancing things, um, especially with uh, how difficult the subject matter was and um, how it required. We kind of jumped through time a couple times. It's It, it kind of it takes place in um, a couple decades. Um, so how they transitioned between that I thought was very interesting. So let's uh, introduce our cast of characters for this film. So we have Ewan McGregor. Uh, he plays Swede Lavov, which is, I'm going to mess that. I'm just going to call him Swede because I'm going to mess that last name up a bunch. Um, so he's basically a, a Jewish American uh, 
you know, war hero, athletic hero. He was kind of like Newark, New Jersey's hometown hero back in the 40s. And he married uh, Jennifer Connolly's character, Dawn, who was a Miss New Jersey. And their daughter, uh, Mary, uh, is Dakota Fanning's character. And uh, those really are the main three. Um, the we, dad, the dad's a featured minor character. Yeah, Peter say. Peter Reigert, uh playing Lou, the dad. You know, he he was good. And then there's uh, Swede's brother Jerry, played by Rupert Evans. And uh, you have Uzo Aduba uh, playing Vicky. He was one of uh, Swede's employees. And I, uh, that's pretty much the main cast right there. And then Valerie Curry, she's the other kind of main, or <clears throat> sorry, the, the minor other, the important other, storyline character. The others, yeah. So we had, yeah, Rita, uh, Valerie Curry playing Rita Cohen. So uh, let, let's set the scene here. Yeah. It's a, uh, I don't know, about mid 90s or so. There's a high school reunion. Uh, an older Jewish man played by uh, David Strathern. I, th- I think I got that name right. You know, he's just kind of just checking out, seeing what's going on at his old high school. And he, apparently he's become a successful writer and he runs into his old best friend, Jerry uh, Lavove, who was uh, the younger brother of Swede. He finds out that, oh, Swede just passed away. And he's like, oh, no, what happened? And we get regaled with the tale of uh, Swede's life the last several decades. It's one of those things, too, where um, the the writer character, he is kind of uh, narrating everything in this intro, uh, introduction section. And um, so we kind of get the feeling that there's something more to this story because the brother says, like, oh, it was the daughter's fault. You know, the Swede, his daughter, he could never let her go. And that's why he's dead. Very cryptic. Yeah. So it's very like, okay, obviously this is where we're going. Um, you know, kind of interesting way to introduce the movie. You immediately know that it's going to have an unhappy ending. Right. We That's, just, that, that, that was the hard thing for me is like, you immediately knew like, ah, shit, this is going to be, this is going to be hard to watch. Yeah. And at times it is. You do know that then your main character is going to die at the end, you know, from the start. But it's not really about his death, so that's it's okay as far as the rest of the movie goes. I mean, the death is incidental as far as it's not really important to the plot. It's just you know the end of the story. He just happened to die. It's it's how you know if it when you hear someone else's story in real life, that's more accurate than if you read a book. It's like fiction or something. You read their beginning to end story in a book, but in real life, you know the beginning and the end story kind of comes at the funeral. So that's like. Uh, I guess a way to make it more realistic. Sure, sure, that makes sense. So, and you know, they take us back in this, you know, at the beginning of, of you know Swede's Swede's life. You know, he's the guy. He's got it all. He's got the beautiful woman. He's got a terrific job. He's got this beautiful home. You know, beautiful family. You know, they talk about how like the world was going to open up its arms for him and rain its blessings upon him. Well, and you know, his dad has a successful business that he built himself, um, making gloves and, uh, has a lot of people that work for him that really like him. And, you know, just, uh, it, it seems like he's got everything stacked for him. You know, he's already got this nice job and, you know, the most beautiful woman in New Jersey and, uh, you know, that what, what, how else could his life go? 
Yeah. I mean, you know, like what other wonderful, amazing things can come along, you know? And well, you know, they want a child and they have uh, a child named Meredith, whom they call Mary, you know, who is a uh, intelligent and precocious young girl with a stuttering problem. And the stuttering problem, uh, you know, the family tries to find ways to deal with it. You know, they, they see, send her to a therapist. You know, uh, the grandfather loses like, oh, she just, you know, her tongue's just too fast for her brain or something. You know, so she gets a lot of dismissive comments. And the therapist, too, you get the feeling isn't very helpful in it and gives some really interesting, shall we say, theories on why she stutters. There's there's a lot of, um, this is kind of like theories, I guess, that were more prevalent in those times. Oh, sure. Um, but there's a whole lot of this, you know, the Swede is kind of like t- traditional, you know, you just deal with problems head on, you know. And um, this... Uh, psychiatrist yeah like a therapist i guess we could call her Um, sheila she's coming from a very different direction um very counterculture kind of direction and so it's difficult for them to um it's difficult for them to move forward because the therapist is seeing things very differently than the way he sees it and the wife too i mean she kind of goes along with what he what the swede is is doing for the most of that um period of the film yeah, because, you know, the film starts like around the, you know, at this point, we're like in the early 60s, too. You know, so a lot of the uh, the beatnik generation is seeped into some of the more mainstream culture. And you see you see traces of that. And you definitely see that like in the some of the art in the film and whatnot. Um, so but they basically get nowhere with addressing her stuttering, which only seems to become a, a greater and greater social hindrance for, for Mary as she gets older. Yes. She becomes more isolated, more withdrawn, and more angry. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, the way she acts out. And um, she, can't, she doesn't know how to deal with things as far as she gets really intense about them. And she doesn't have a, a safe release. So it, it ends up turning into behaviors that aren't... Um, just self-destructive, you know, destructive to the people around her. Like uh, in, <clears throat> in one scene early on, when, when we finally see her in adolescence, when she's a teen, uh, Lyndon Johnson's given a speech on, on a TV and she really, really, you know, loses it and just can't control her rage and anger at what's going on in Vietnam. I think I've skipped ahead a little bit, though. I mean, a lot of the stuff that that came before then, is kind of world building and showing um, what's going on. I mean, it's the 60s. There's a lot of social unrest. There's a lot of um, different ideas. You know, people are, are really, um, uh, the war and all that kind of stuff is all, it's all a big uh, problem. But specifically the self-immolation of the Vietnamese monk that Mary sees when she's, say, about 10 years old. Right. Or maybe 12 at the oldest. Um, just absolutely spins her world around and puts her right on her head. And it's definitely the catalyst for the, you know, she becomes very interested in the politics. And, um, you know, when once you start thinking, why would someone do that? You yeah. know, it really, t- it makes her think about everything. Yeah, it, it definitely, uh, I mean, I think we'd re- re- I'd be really remiss if we didn't mention that. Yeah, it, kind of, you know, it radicalizes her. It, it really does radicalize her and it opens her up and it really sets her off on a, trajectory that really she ends up aligning with um 
you know, so, so they're out, you know, like in the New Jersey countryside, but she tries to go into, as a teen, she goes into, you know, into New York with, you know, quote unquote friends who we never really see or find out much about who are, you know, countercultural activists, you know, maybe good guys, maybe they're scumbags. We never really find out if, you know, they're on the level or if they're just, you know, nutcases. And, you know, that, you know, all that starts causing increasing tensions in the family. And, you know, the, the daughter just becomes even more just, you know, radicalized and angry and just resentful of her family and resentful of her parents. And um, there's a couple of scenes where it, uh, I kind of mentioned it a little bit, but when we pass through time, uh, the way they did it was they did like old clips of like archival footage. Yeah. So there's actual, you know, real footage from the time in between whenever we do a little time skip. And so, you know, they show people protesting during this time and there's, uh, you know, racial riots going on and all this kind of stuff. And so they show actual clips of it in between uh, these events happening. So it's kind of just showing over time that um, things are slipping for the Swede. Um, you know, his, his business is under attack. His, you know, daughter's being radicalized. His wife, even uh, at this point, is kind of losing touch a little bit um, with just, I guess, who she is. She she doesn't really know who she is anymore being this, um, I guess, person she did, she never really wanted to be. Yeah, like, you know, she goes from being, you know, being a, a beauty queen with ambition to basically just milking cows on this farm in the middle of nowhere. While the world around them is, you know, changing radically and quickly, and yeah, it's very off. You know, it's it's very off. What's what's a good word for it? You know, it's unsettling for him. You know, so there's a lot going on. The world's changing. You know, radically. You know, he's he's focused on his business. His wife is focused on the cows. Right. I think that's they, the thing. The daughter have, is just absorbing all of it. And he can't see it because he's too, you know, he's trying to keep the business afloat and just keep on doing what he's always done. And so he doesn't see how that's affecting her. I mean, he sees it, but he doesn't know how to deal with it. Yeah, he has no idea how to confront it or combat it or... I mean, he tries to do the the kind of parent thing of, okay, you're not going to go to New York anymore. I'm going to, you know... I'm going to say no. I'm going to put my foot down. He tries to instill some boundaries, but she just disregards them, as we see. And he even tries to offer her an alternative to protesting in New York. You know, and she's like, well, you know, like, you know, read Marx. You can't you can't have a revolution in the countryside. And revolution's not what he has in mind, of course. You know, he's you know, he, you know, he's you know, he, he, he's a, a liberal sort you know, he's against the war. He's, he's against, against the war against the uh, racial inequalities. Um, so he, he has a, a good mindset as far as that stuff goes, but he doesn't have a radical mindset like she does. Yeah. He, he, he's still very, you know, centrist and, uh, you know, you even see in another film, you know, he has Republican friends and that kind of thing. And so he's, he, he just tries hard to, to find a way to get through to her and to reach some kind of compromise. And he offers, you know, well, Hey, you know, why don't you, why don't you protest right here in our little town? 
you know, like your, your, your war pamphlets and stuff say to bring the war home. And, you know, so why don't you do that here? And just, you know, think about what I said. And then the big thing happens in the film. She, you know, or a bomb is planted at the local post office and it kills one of their friends and neighbors. And then Mary disappears and they have no idea where she's gone. And they, they look high and low for her. They have their house searched by the FBI. Presumably it gets wiretapped and bugged. Um, a short time later, a, a, a young woman named Rita Cohen, played by Valerie Curry, shows up. This is a while later. This is, is a it, while later. Is it is, is worth saying as far as they just show how in the aftermath, um, the Swede is just like unable to kind of cope with it. He's keeps trying to say like someone made her do this, you know, someone influenced her, someone brainwashed her, someone's um, kidnapped her. Oh, but you know, both parents are definitely in absolute denial about it and they just can't handle it. And also too, when they're, um, when the FBI first come to, uh, their house to do the search and, and look for evidence of things, that's when you really see the mother Dawn just absolutely kind of snap. Right. And she never quite comes back from that. Yeah. Like she just, something just flips a switch. And that's kind of the catalyst for her to go on her little, you know, spiral or trajectory. And a lot of that too, um, you said uh, when they they went to the victim's house? Yeah, the Hamlins. That's right. And they talk, and ooh, and yeah, so they go to, the, yeah, so yeah, in the, in the aftermath, they go, he and his wife, uh, you know, the Sweden Dawn, you know, they go to the Hamlin's house and they talk to his widow, you know, and these, you know, they really try to, you know, offer their condolences and, you know, like if my daughter had anything to do with this, you know, like I blame myself for my bad parenting or whatever. And, you know, after quietly taking all of this in, the widow just kind of replies, you know, I feel bad for you. You're as victims as we are. But in the end, we're still going to be a family and still be intact. And that'll be the key difference between us. And that was a massive burn and also correct. Yeah. So it just set the, the tone for the whole rest of the movie. It really does. You know, cause uh, you know, Sweden Dawn never really have a marriage after that, you know, at least, you know, in really just a name only. And they spend years looking for Mary to no avail. And part of that, so I, I, I jumped ahead a little bit earlier, but, uh, you know, Rita Cohen shows up looking, you know, she shows up at, at, at his glove factory, you know, pretending like, oh, I'm doing a college thesis on, you know, on glove making or something and on business, you know, and, uh, you know, so like, oh, you know, we'll have a, a pair made for you and we'll talk to you about him. And, you know, when he's with her in the office, she just immediately just her expression changes and she like starts demanding personal effects that belong to Mary that only she would have known about that only Mary would have known about. So that, and that spirals this whole thing too, where he ends up on this goose chase, uh, trying to get Rita to give him more information or, or tell him, you know, where she is or something. And he never gets anywhere. She even lures him to a hotel room. And tries uh, to, you know, get him compromised, you know, sexually. And, you know, 
I think I think a little bit comes pretty close to almost making him do it. I mean, he's just so and, desperate to reconnect with her, and you know, he he still can't ever accept the fact that you know she did this. Yeah, that she was you know it wasn't someone else that forced her to do this, or you know there was some kind of misunderstanding. He always believed in the ultimate goodness and innocence of his daughter, which I think just about any parent would, you know, and that's incredibly natural. You know, I mean, even Jeffrey Dahmer's parents still loved him till the end, you know, and that guy like literally cooked and ate people, you know, I mean, it's his parents still loved him. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, Swede's case, he still loves his daughter and he wants the best for her and he's still hoping that there's some way that he can salvage, you know, her life and their relationship and everything. And, you know, Rita just kind of plays him along and, you know, for the most part, just, you know, leaves him empty handed until he just happens to run into her one night and tracks her down. And then she ends up dropping him off in this really dilapidated uh, neighborhood. So in the neighborhood, um, she basically says, uh, your daughter's here, you know, and she's been here. Um, and it turns out it's not that far away. Right there in Newark. So, um, it turns out that over time, um, the daughter has changed significantly. So, Mary is not really Mary anymore. When we finally meet her, you know, we spent all this time with Swede and seeing all of his struggles and, you know, his just not not able to accept the the reality. Um, So, when we finally see Mary, it's confirmed that she isn't, she's not Mary anymore. You know, it's not really his daughter anymore. She's changed so radically that, you know, he doesn't, can't really even recognize that any part of her anymore. So it turns out she has um, been underground for a long time, going from place to place, um, being hidden, and then kind of just joining a uh, religious sect, um, well, I guess before that, you know, she she was responsible for the bomb. So she did do that. She eventually does admit that when he asks her directly. And not only that, but she did multiple times. And then over time, it seems kind of as a way to deal with the guilt. She's turned to this this faith where, you know, she doesn't believe in in having anything or doing anything to anyone, um, you know, denying herself of all kinds of material wealth she she takes an extreme uh, an extreme an extreme take on you know like spiritual and physical and emotional minimalism yeah you know she, she basically, basically deprived herself of everything yeah um it kind of in penance for what she's done you know she it, she doesn't come out and say it exactly that way but you know basically like she's finally felt what her destruction did uh, to other people and her way of taking kind of responsibility for it is by um, going this way. Just isolating herself and apparently working in an animal hospital, you know, but it's like she covers her face to, so she doesn't, you know, breathe into the air and infect things, you know, which is very interesting in this day and age, in this day and age, you know, a five-year-old movie, you know, but she, you know, she only has one thing on her wall and it's, it's like what the five, the five principles or five. Oh, uh, right. It's it's the 
like, I'm assuming this is a real. Yeah, it's it's like you know some you know some some you know Eastern uh, religion religion religious sect. You said it was Jain, Jainism or something. We're probably butchering this. I don't know. We're you know we're 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 middle aged white men. We got know? the idea of what it was. We got the idea of what it Perfectly was. You know, fine. it's yeah, you know, it's a mid, Middle Eastern Indian religious sect, Jainism or something. She called herself a Jain. In a lot of ways, at this point, she's kind of. Um, not just confirmed that she's a different person, but she shows that, you know, there's nothing left from her previous life. You know, she doesn't value any of that anymore. Um, from her point of view, she's kind of just uh, 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 just existing, but not trying to influence anything else. The last time he's, you know, he sees her, he brings a bag of her things. You know, I, I think in some ways to like rekindle some memory or something within her. That would remind her of where she's from and what she's, you know, initially of. And it just doesn't. It doesn't work. She just takes it as a sign. It's like, oh, are you going to be going away forever now? Maybe that's best. You know, and he finally, you know, gets her to remove her mask and her teeth are rotted out. And, you know, she's just like in terrible shape overall. And, you know, and then she, she bids goodbye to him. And then that's basically that. He never sees her again. Right. And throughout this part, too, it's, uh, you know, his, his the wife, um, Dawn. Dawn. Has uh, totally broken down. Um, you know, she's had some episodes. Uh, she's admitted to a mental hospital. And, you know, her way of dealing with it is very different than Swede's way of dealing with it. So she, she wants to, like, she wants to go have plastic surgery and, like, just basically change herself you know she wants to live her, the life she wants to live and just move on from this um but it kind of turns out during this point that she's also is moving on from swede yeah so you know she blames him for what happened with the daughter and for her own unhappiness um so she starts you know fooling around with this other guy um an artist friend of theirs yeah right one of their mutual friends um, so at this point, like the whole family's falling apart because even though he finally found his daughter, you know, she's not really the, the same person anymore. Yeah. And then the wife doesn't, even if they'd had found her, the wife doesn't want anything to do with, um, the daughter anymore. Yeah. He even tries to talk, you know, tell her that, Hey, I found her and she just doesn't even want to hear it. No, it's just too late, you know? And it's, uh, and even with, uh, the wife's infidelity, it's never really, it's not re- ever revealed if there actually is a real confrontation about that. Yeah. You know, who knows? I mean, I just assume at that point, I mean, he has so, he, he has no ability to let go. So I, I, I just imagine, I mean, it's left up to your imagination, but I left that, felt that he didn't do anything about it and she just left, you know? Yeah. That's kind of the feeling I got for it. It's not like he was going to confront them. Um. You know, I, I felt like he would just let her go and just still just stay this broken kind of man. You know, he has nothing left. Does seem that way. But, you know, it is left to your imagination, at least at least in the film. I mean, in the book, maybe there's there's more there. I mean, I, I would be, be curious to read it if I didn't think it was going to be such an absolutely gut-wrenching, uh, heart-crushing, soul-destroying read, which is kind of what I feel like uh, I'd be in for. If I cracked open a book like this, just here, spend a few hours more 
you know, reading about the life of a man who's absolutely going down the toilet. And now that we've talked about the guts of the movie, yeah, can we talk about like how emotionally investing I think it is? Um, I think there's just a whole lot here. It's, I mean, obviously it's not light material and it's not happy material, but uh, it is very enthralling. I think of the uh, of the fourteen films that we've talked about so far, this is definitely the heaviest of all all of them by far. It's it's also kind of that like you know the train wreck effect where like you can't look away, like you just oh. you have to see how. Well, I mean, th- th- there were a couple of times too, like where I had to cover my face but still peek between <laughs> my fingers. I definitely had that a couple of times. I mean, yeah, it's definitely an emotionally involving film. At least it was for me. Yeah. I, I, you know, just a cursory glance online, you know, it seems a lot of the, you know, at least professional reviewers at the time didn't seem to think so. But, you know, what do they know? I think it's uh, it's just one of those things where I, a lot of it works really well. And it's not perfect. Um, there are a couple of times where the writing is like not exact enough. It's not um, like the theme is right. You know what I'm saying? The emotion's right throughout yeah. the whole film. I think the emotion was was perfect throughout the whole film. Um, and it was filmed well. Uh, everything looks really great. It looks, you know, period correct. And um, Some we, beautiful, beautiful cars. We were at the one point uh, when we t- took a short pause talking about how all just looking at all the stuff in the background was great. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, like uh, there's when like they're in their little den or whatever, and I'm just looking at the beautiful wood paneling and the lamps and the couches and, you know, like, you know, books on the shelves and everything. I mean, the set decoration was, was fantastic. And, you know, that aside, I mean, even like the, the industrial buildings in Newark, New Jersey in the sixties looked fantastic. The clothing, um, and they didn't do any of that weird, like, you know, sepia ish tone to the film either. No, which they love to do when they try to, you know, recreate scenes from the past. I mean, they, they kept it, they just you know, very e- true color. You they know? let everything look nice. They did, yeah. They didn't make it grainy and, and gross, you know? Yeah. Not even like subtly, really. So it was, uh, I, I really enjoyed all of those aspects of it too. So yeah, so the window dressing was nice. And I, I just feel like it, it helped stay connected throughout the whole film because you're also transitioning through time and uh, a lot of different, you know, kind of the political and... Uh, turmoil and all that kind of stuff. One thing that, so like, you know, so my father was born in 1940 and he hates hippies. He hates liberals. He hates anything remotely countercultural. And while watching this film, I mean, he would have been in his twenties and the sixties and that, you know, my dad was in the service and you know, and you really see like a lot of this film through Ewan McGregor's eyes. You really see the whole film through his eyes. Uh, once you're in, you know, once you're in the past uh, for those sequences. And for a little bit, I was able to kind of see a bit of what pissed my dad off when he was young. I, I, I could see it, you know, like the out of control, you know teenage rebellion and like the rioting and everything. I mean, it was able, cause I've always been on the side of the counterculturals, you know, and you know, have been ever since I was, you know, a teen and it was just, so I don't know. I was able to get a glimpse of just kind of the other side of things on how, you know, more, more how middle America may have felt, you know, 
whether or not it was, you know, regardless of like the facts of anything, just how people felt and how they regarded things and how they emotionally responded. And that was, uh, so, I mean, that, that probably more than anything is what I think I got out of this film mm-hmm. was maybe just a little more empathy for my, my cranky old father, <laughs> you know, just to see, you know, cause you know, he, not to get, you know, too personal, but you know, he had a younger brother, you know, he was a hell's angels who was killed. And, uh, you know, that always, that always stuck with them, you know, just events like that early in his life that really cemented his no pot and no this and no that and, you know, the goddamn hippies and everything. And it's like, and I, I get it in that sense. So I was able to see a little bit of that through, through his eyes just for a moment or two. I think that's uh, one of the strong points in the movie. I think the emotional connection uh, to different characters is strong because like you were saying, as someone who feels like the counterculture people were more right overall. Yeah. Um, it's hard because you want to sympathize with. You want to sympathize with your team, so to speak, right? You know. No, as a viewer, though. Yeah. I want to sympathize with Mary. You do, but because I mean, she's gone a little too far. But theoretically, she's on the right side. In many respects. You know, like she's against the war, she's against the destruction, and yet she, you know, she became the thing that she sought to destroy as well. All right. You know, and. You know, like in the end, it's like the only the only person I could really sympathize with was Swede. Yeah, Ewan McGregor's character. He he was the only uh, he was the only person. Well, one of the only people I felt through the whole film who was being genuinely fair to everyone and trying his best, right? And trying to be understanding, even if he even if he couldn't, and try you know, and just bewildered at. Well, not even bewildered, but just defeated in his sense of being unable to affect any of the change that he was trying to. Right. And that was kind of his flaw, too, is that he was yeah. unable to change his mindset uh, while everyone else around him was. Yeah. You know, everyone else was changing and he just couldn't accept it. Um, it wasn't like he thought anything wrong, necessarily. It's just um, he couldn't change you know, they even say it with um, in his business dealings because, you know, they keep saying other people are sending jobs overseas. Like, I'm keeping everyone here. And everything he's doing is trying to grasp onto this life um, and keep it at all costs. I mean, he, he's definitely, you know, repre- that character is definitely representative of post-war America and of the ideal of what America was, you know, for a long time. And the inability of America to let go of that image of what it is to be American too, which we still have with us today. Cause there's, you know, we, we, you know, we live in America where, you know, it's incredibly multifaceted and the portrait of Swede, you know, like the all American, the war hero, the, the star athlete, the guy who gets the girl, the guy who's his own boss, you know, a lot of those, you know, were fantastic, uh, fantastic things to aspire to. Sure. But so is, I don't know, I guess being a writer or being a, you know, being an excellent garbage man or being a fantastic toaster oven repairman, you know, or, you know, being, uh, being a yogi. So, I mean, he does, 
so Swede does do a great job of representing, you know, like the, the old America and the America that collectively a lot of people look back on with fondness as what America was and really should be. It's like the baseline. And you see how that baseline, uh, there's less and less room for that ideal in the world. I think that's a perfect way to put it. And, you know, just like he has this ideal of what his daughter should be that she never was to begin with. You know, if you consider stuttering a flaw and, you know, countercultural rebellion a flaw and, you know, certainly pipe bombing and murdering is definitely a flaw. He never gives up on that ideal of what she was or should be to him. You know, even revisiting the place he last saw her for decades after he last saw her. Just wasting away at that spot, you know, just waiting to see her again or catch a glimpse of her. When even she herself, as we see, moves on from that point as well. He never moves on. So, I mean, what, you know, so it makes you, you know, wonder what is this film really about? Is it about, you know letting go is it about moving forward is it about embracing change i think it's it's a complex movie so i think it is it's about multiple of those things i think um definitely like you were saying you can't you can't just be a living ideal um i think that's a big part of it the the people you know it's okay to change it's okay to to be someone else you but at the same time you can lose yourself if you tried to be the wrong thing. I think you just nailed it as far as the, you know, there's the ideal American, their ideal America. And at a certain point that just couldn't exist anymore. And indeed it could only exist for a very short time. All things considered. And like you said, it more exists, I think in memory. It, it exists more in people's minds than I think it ever existed in reality anyway. You know, the nifty fifties were not nifty for, you know, anybody who wasn't white and male, you know, certainly not for many women, certainly not for anybody who is any kind of ethnic minority. And yet those are the, you know, those are the years that we glory, you know, at least, you know, a certain population in this country still does, you know, and certainly, you know, have for decades, you know, in the sixties, you know, we're also seen too. I mean, the sixties were like the dividing point for a lot of things. You know, that was the, that's the deviation decade from, you know, the old system. And we've, we've been in a cultural war ever since that, you know, we're still in the midst of now. I mean, there's, you know, there's footage of riots and shootings and police brutality. And it's like, man, nothing has changed. You know, some important things have changed, but not enough and not quick enough. You know, and, and, you know, and Mary's anger and rage at, the world as it is, you know, is justifiable in many respects. And, and certainly I, I empathize with that. And still current. And still current. And still a problem. You know, we're still, you know, bombing people overseas. You know, I didn't mean for this, you know, podcast to get political, but <laughs> it is this time. This is a very politically charged film. You know, but we're still, we're still bombing people overseas. We still have race problems in this country. We still have all the issues that this film addresses, you know. Because ultimately, they're universal issues. And if anything, I think the, the, the real American ideal is that 
We're always going to have race problems. We're always going to be bombing people. And we're always going to be at odds with ourselves. I mean, I think that more than anything is like what it means to be American. You know, we're constant existential crisis. The end. Beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you. So, I don't know. Would you, uh, what was your best, what was your favorite performance in this film? Um, I think uh, Ewan McGregor is uh, an obvious choice for just um, likable main character. Uh, great performance. Just your your all-American guy, which is great because he's not. His accent in this was, was awesome. Yeah. Apparently, he um, used Ray Liotta tapes to uh, perfect his New Jersey accent, which I thought was, that's absolutely splendid. I love his voice tone anyway. So just hearing him like really nail that uh, mid-century Northeastern accent. Yeah, it was perfect. I loved it. And then, uh, I mean, there's really not a, there's not a bad performance in this film at all. No. Dakota Fanning did fantastic. Jennifer Conley did fantastic. Dakota Fanning, she had to go from like frothing at the mouth, you know, teen radical to just basically like a shell of a person at the end of the movie, which was, I mean, pretty incredible. I think they're absolutely, you know, and even as the frothing teen also have a stuttering problem. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, she definitely, uh, it was definitely a challenging role, I think. And she did, did excellent. And one of my, I think my favorite though was Lou. Yeah. Uh, portrayed by Peter Reigert. Uh, just the, uh, just absolutely just very direct, very bold, kind of rude, Father of Swede. Uh, he, he just, he, he played, had a couple of great one-liners, you he, know? He played that perfect family member that always, always, always says something that's like, that you shouldn't say. You should never say that to someone. And he always just slips it in there. He's just like, oh, what did I say? You know? And it, and it's not like it's super rude, but rude enough that he's like, he kind of lets you know where he stands on things, you know? Yeah. You know, his, uh, his first scene is when, uh, you know, uh, Swede takes Dawn to meet him, you know, because they want to get married. And he's just like, you know, he's and they're Jewish. Dawn isn't. And, you yeah, know, she's, and she's like Catholic, too. So it's like, yeah. And he's like, you're like baptism. Strange. No, 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 no way. We can't do that. We got to talk about the bar mitzvah. Well, I don't want a bar mitzvah. It's like, oh, we can't do this. You know, but it was, you know, that was a great exchange. You know, <laughs> it was, you know, they were, they were being respectful with each other, but also, you know, and, and it was just great to see Jennifer Connelly just be like, uh, uh-uh, I'm going to marry this man. I love him. And he's just like, yeah, well, you know, it was good. It was just, just, you know, he doesn't have a lot of screen time, but he's, he, he's a great, you know, they're always good. Always uh, good moments. Like you, you see where, uh, you see where like Ewan, uh, or sorry, not Ewan's, but Swede's tenaciousness comes from a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, he definitely, definitely gets that streak from his, you know, his very direct and stubborn father. And, uh, I don't know. It was just, that was nice. Uh, most useless or extraneous character? The nurse. <laughs> I don't think that doesn't even count. It doesn't. Okay, so it, so at one point, you know, after you know, after Swede's been contacted by Rita, he goes and talks to his brother, who's a doctor at a hospital, and they're having an exchange like on some steps outside, and just randomly, this nurse tries to get him to come back inside. And he just very rudely shoes her away. He tells her to go jump in the lake. He's like, God, go jump in the lake. 
Yeah, I guess. I there's not a whole lot of extraneous characters in here, so I guess not I'd many. Have to give that one to you. I mean, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, that she did not need to enter that scene for that scene to have worked the way that it did. Fair. Does it really reveal anything about the character of of Swede's brother Jerry? No. Other than that, Jerry's maybe a little bit of a jerk. Well, his character doesn't ultimately doesn't really matter. I mean, not not that he doesn't matter as a character. I just mean his his story doesn't matter. Oh, his story doesn't matter at all. Yeah. You know, he's just. But it is one little important point of reference because he's the one telling the story to. Right. You and know, the writer also, in the beginning. He is also the voice of caution. He is the voice of caution. He's the voice of you know you should yeah. you should be working with FBI. You should be you know you should move on. You should you know. He's kind of he, he can see that his brother isn't is not keeping up with the times and yeah. not you know changing. So he encourages him to, but at the same time recognizes that it's impossible. And meanwhile, you know, the nurse comes out and he shoos her away. So that that'd be my win for this uh Mm-mm. this week's most extraneous character. Uh soundtrack uh or score discussion. Is there anything uh, we can add to those points? Not much. I mean, no. there was some music earlier in the film I noticed more than later. Yeah, there was some Buffalo Springfield, you know. For what it's worth, that was the one that really stuck out with me. There was some jazz. There was oh yeah, there was Dave Dave Brubeck's Take Five. That was fun. That's a good one. That's a classic. And then uh, I think that was about it. You know, so uh, minimal music. Yeah. But the music they picked was was excellent. I'll, I'll give it that A plus. All right. Uh final final recommendation, Ken. What do you think of this one? I really liked it. Uh, I liked that it was a bit of a deeper uh, thinking movie. As sure as we highbrow people call it the the good old thinking movie the deep brainer thinker yeah, whatever you know it's 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 hard to watch a movie like I, i'm just not a real big drama person i like my dramas to be a bit more um i guess i like more thriller kind of movies sure this was yeah i, I liked this film i wouldn't i'm not gonna say i enjoyed it Mm. This is not a film that you go in and enjoy. I think that's a great this way is, to put it. This is not like it. This is not entertainment. This is. This is a great yeah. movie. I think. Yeah. I think that, that there's a lot of great stuff in it. And it's good to think about the things that were happening. Sure. Um, but like you said, it's not. If you want to like, you know, sit and eat popcorn and eat cookies and have a good time watching this. That's not what's going to happen. I mean, we sat and had popcorn and just suffered in silence. <laughs> with with some, you know, some good sidelongs, you know, glances <laughs> at each other. I mean, it's it's a heavy film. It's a heavy film. You're not going to you're not going to feel, you know, happy and light after this. You're going to feel kind of heavy and kind of maybe, you know, maybe a little uh, not depressed, but just a little low in spirit. Yeah. I, I think it just it had something good to say as far as it was an interesting take on this time period, and um, like you, like we were discussing, a lot of these points are still relevant today. You know, you could tell this story right now. You yeah, you, I mean, you really could set it today and just tweak a few details, and it would work fine. You know, shipping jobs overseas, you know, racial justice, um, overseas wars, you know. Domestic terrorism, an out-of-touch father who can't quite grasp what the hell's going on in his world. 
that's pretty universal stuff right there. You know? And there you have it. So, yeah, I, I think it was really good. Um, I would recommend it if you're into more drama-y movies or just, uh, I don't know. Like, I don't know how, how to put that exactly. I do recommend it. I think it was really good. It's But like you said, it's not, you don't go into it wanting to be entertained. This is not an, enter, this is not for entertainment. This is not, this is not a bubblegum flick. You know, this is not a, a summer tentpole film. You you go into this to just stew in someone's this misery. Is, this is a Sundance Film Festival type of film, you know? Yeah. This is this is the we're we're trying to get an Oscar type of film. Yeah. And not for the special effects. No. Thank you for tuning in this week here at the uh OM Stockroom with uh, Complimentary Cinema. We're your hosts, Brian McGarry. And Ken O'Malley. Uh, next week, uh, who knows what we're going to, uh, yeah, who knows what we're going to watch. I, we're going to, we're not going to, we don't know what it's going to be until right before we, uh, we watch it. There is no way of knowing. There's no way of knowing if the rower is still rowing, which they won't be. Um, but yeah, so, uh, new episodes every Wednesday, um, check us out here on whatever streaming service you're using, whether it be YouTube or Spotify or what are some of the other ones? Uh, Google, Apple, um, Stitcher. Nice. I didn't even know what the, I've never even heard of that one. You're 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 awesome at this. Castos. Castos. What? Okay. <laughs> awesome. All right. We'll see you next week. And of guys. course, omstockroom.com. Oh, and omstockroom.com. We're everywhere. Till next time.